Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How dare you? Oh, what'd I do? Oh, you spoke uh, slightly ill of the hate cast. Oh, man. Oh. I know. Well, you know why? Why is that? Be- it's because I'm jealous. Well, I mean, it I, stands to reason. I mean, sure. We got mentioned in Movie Maker Magazine. Absolutely. And the hate cast didn't. Yeah. Not that they're a movie podcast, right, but still, right. I think, I think that says something. <laughs> uh, but still, despite not being mentioned in Movie yeah. Maker Magazine, the hate cast continues to have more listeners than we do, yeah. and that just drives me insane. Oh, and so gosh. I say these awful things about it. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 content of the of the podcast. It's everything that David, you and I both look for. It's mm-hmm. everything. It's a dream, but we can't let her have it. Right. Because enough other people have, all right. Yeah. So uh, we have to ignore our positive feelings uh, because we're so insanely jealous. Yeah. All right. That was uh, that was for one guy who probably won't hear it. Um, yeah. That's that's not true at all. As everyone right. knows the only podcast that I talk shit about because I'm jealous of, of, of its success is the Sound of Young America. The Sound of Young. Everyone America. knows that. Okay. I don't think uh, I knew that. No, I'm just saying. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm joking, but I do want to bring up that uh, Sound of Young America and um, the other podcast and the website MaximumFun.org are having their their donation drive right now. Okay, and uh, I just feel like because uh, the Pod Thoughts column uh, mm. on MaximumFun.org not only gave us our first good review, but also has continued to mention us from time to time. Yeah. Uh, and it's done a lot of good for us. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to mention that to people. So, uh, head on over to maximumfund.org and do some donating. Yeah. It's, uh, I, 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 I unfortunately don't really listen to anything of theirs, but I enjoy Jesse Thorne every time he's on like never not funny. And I like what, I like what he does in general. And I, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of, uh, he's kind of a, kind of a self-made man. You know what I mean? Okay. And, uh. And I like that. And so uh, let's all go support it. Yeah. That's what I say. Yes. <clears throat> and you mentioned the Pod Thoughts uh, column. And uh, speaking of jealousy, I, this is, Colin, this is for you. I'm so very Colin jealous. Colin Marshall is the person who writes yeah. Pod Thoughts. Now, the person who reviewed it then reviewed was, us, it was, was Ian, Brill. Ian Brill. And we know Ian from way back Yeah, um, when he wrote that review. Um, he but, gave us some comic books to the live show. He sure did. And they're good. They are good. Yeah. I keep meaning to tell him, but I'm gonna, I imagine I'm going to see him. Yeah, soon, yeah. So. Um, but uh, but I'm very jealous of uh, Colin's voice and his speaking style. He just sounds so much <laughs> older than I do, but not in a crotchety way. He just sounds like he's got things worked out. So, okay. well done, Colin. All <coughs> right, so we're done singing the praises of other people. Yeah. Uh, and we're done uh, ripping on the hate cast for now. I mean, I still I still have all the hate in my heart Absolutely. for the hate cast. Absolutely. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it there so yeah. it's not too... Offend the have to keep it at bay. these sensitive hate cast <laughs> fans <laughs> that listen to us. Um, the uh, okay, so uh, at the top of the show, um, now I, I kind of feel like uh, addressing this a little bit because a few people have said it, and uh, and I'm 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 not incredibly sensitive to it. In fact, I I, I do understand where people are coming from. I mean, mm-hmm. some people have said that um, that our top of the show kind of goes on uh, a little long before we get into the topic. You know what? I'll, I'll sometimes they're absolutely right. Uh, I would agree with that. Yes. Uh, but last week's, yes, it was long, mm-hmm. but it was related to yeah to movies and movie fandom. Uh, I yeah. guess I don't. Maybe I, I I don't know. 
to me, it, to me, if we go on talking about whatever t-shirts or, mm-hmm. or whatever, which we do sometimes, I, yeah. I I feel bad about that sometimes. Yeah, uh, when it's like you know, nineteen minutes in, and yeah, we're still talking about fashion or cake or something. Yeah, that's a callback to the very first episode or colloquialisms. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, it's I, I understand where they're coming from uh, from time to time, but what I will say is that uh, uh, you know to let you guys behind the curtain a little bit, uh, David and I have discussed it, and this is something that we kind of need to uh-huh. kind of find our flow and rhythm before we get into yeah. the topic. Because um, this so, isn't this isn't five years ago in Chicago. I'd, I'd say about eighty five percent of the conversations that Tyler and I have, mm-hmm. you guys hear. I'd say that's about right. Yeah, <laughs> we don't spend. As much time, like uh, nearly as much time together as we did back yeah. we lived in in Chicago, so we kind of do have to get back into the rhythm. Yeah, so a little like, bit. He comes over, we talk about. I'm usually lost. I usually have some sort of food. Yeah. that I've just picked up. Talk about Lost uh, and various other sorts of things. Um, I don't know what we're going to talk about when Lost is over. I don't know what kind of conversations we can have. I don't know. Maybe we talk about our lives, our dreams. Yeah. Um, Maybe you should uh, get some more cable channels, and we'll have some more TV to talk about. I know you. I know you can afford to have FX. <laughs> yes, I. I probably can. Yeah, but at the same time, I just feel like I. I don't have it because I don't. I don't have cable because I feel like that's all I will ever do. Then. Oh, that's true. I don't really watch movies anymore. <laughs> it, right. You because know. I. I watch TV all the time. So. Uh, so that's 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 my reasoning. But uh, but yeah. So this is this is something that David and I David and I need. And uh, and yes, we we're we're sorry for when it when it kind of goes on. Um, but, uh, today it will be a little bit shorter, but I did want to talk about something at the top. Uh, okay. Okay. I, it's more only six minutes in. Okay. Hurry, just su- hurry up. Hurry You've got a solid 10 I thought it'd be minutes. fun to do that whole thing and then say, let's get into a challenge. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry. We should have talked about that beforehand. Right, let's um, talk about a thing. Now, David, as you know, um, you know, I mean, you and I both kind of, kind of do this where from time to time we will wind up watching a movie that, uh, not necessarily together, but, uh, you know, we've been meaning to see it for forever. People have been talking about it. And as will often be the case, you watch it and you're like, yeah, that was fine. I'm not uh-huh. sure if it's worth all, you know, all the hoopla. It's just really, it's just a solid movie. But, you know, that's all. That's all. Uh, it doesn't really live up to the hype. Uh, I and, had that uh, reaction to uh, <coughs> the first Spider-Man movie. Because okay. I didn't see it in the theater. I okay. didn't see it until DVD. And uh, I found it competent and yeah. entertaining, but not as awesome as the second one would prove to be. Indeed, absolutely. I'm talking about more classic movies, but at the same oh, time... Oh, I see what you're saying. You know. Okay. Uh, to some, and I apologize if this sounds condescending, it, it frequently astounds me. To some, Spider-Man pretty much is a classic movie at this <laughs> point. Uh, I, I'm fascinated when people say, like, it's like, oh, this is a, you know... They'll, they'll recommend, like, Saving Private Ryan. They'll be like, no, it's an older movie. So, you know, don't <laughs> let that throw you. It's like, what? What? Um, but then I just realized that I'm a, you know, a, a dork who saw movies from well over a hundred years ago. Um, but, uh, which will, and that'll, that'll play into our topic, Okay. but it will not transition into our topic because I got something to say. Okay. Um, but, uh, I recently watched a movie that, um, that I fully expected to not live up to the hype. Um, and that is the 1938 adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah. With Errol Flynn. Yeah. Um, you know, I had seen stills from it and 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 it just looked it is it looked like uh it didn't have the grit that I so badly want from like period films. Uh-huh. Um 
all the costumes were too brightly colored and, and all that. And I just, I just didn't expect it to be very good. And then I watched it the other day with my friend, and uh, boy, oh boy, that movie is fantastic. It's great, That right? movie lives up to and vastly exceeds the hype. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's really quite astounding. Every, I, I don't, I, get, I don't use the word masterpiece very often, mm-hmm. but that film, I would say, is a masterpiece. It's just got everything that you want in a Robin Hood film, certainly, but just everything you want in just a fun, entertaining film, mm. you know? Um, like, and I've often said that at times Warner Brothers has rivaled Criterion in putting out really well done, well uh, great transfers, great special features, really yeah. great DVDs, and yeah. that Adventures of Robin Hood DVD is top notch. And I would say, uh, and you, I mean, you, uh, I feel like you have. Uh, stronger opinions on on the use of Technicolor, mm-hmm. um, but I would say that uh, it it speaking of rival, rivaling things, it rivals I would say any other film in its brilliant use of Technicolor. I mean, it's just everything is just so every well, color is so rich. There's Black Narcissist, and then there's every other film that used Technicolor. As far as I'm concerned, I don't know. This is one. This one's pretty good. I've seen Black Narcissist. It's it's amazing. Don't get me wrong, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the use of color and the and the art direction and the music and the acting is all wonderful. Um, and uh, for those who haven't seen it, uh, and and if you're like me, perhaps you are were a little scared away by uh, by the you know kind of the staginess that it would appear. Uh, and then you come to realize that it's not it's not that you know the costumes are just so overly done or anything like that. The idea is this is supposed to be like a legend that you're watching. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to be watching the reality. You're supposed to be watching the legend, the fairy tale aspect of it. And uh, and it's supposed to be clean and beautiful and just amazing. But also the, it's incredibly well written, uh, very well acted. I don't think I'd ever seen Errol Flynn before. Um, I feel like maybe I have, but you know what? I can't. Nothing else comes to mind, so I'll say this is the first Errol Flynn film I've seen. But him and Olivia de Havilland and uh, mm. Basil Rathbone, and certainly as a uh, favorite of mine, Claude Rains as Prince John, uh, they're all, <laughs> they're all uh, they're all really astounding. And uh, if, yeah, for those that that haven't seen it, really seek it out. It's everything. Uh, you know, you and I have talked about in the past that uh, a movie doesn't have to. You know, a movie can be entertaining without sacrificing quality. Mm-hmm. And not only can it can it be entertaining without sacrificing quality, it can be entertaining and be vastly superior to films that are trying to deliver deliver a message you know try to be important like this was a film that all it wanted to do was entertain people and it managed to be uh, a brilliant work of art every step of the way so uh i, I just i loved it so much i was so happy i saw it <clears throat> all right gonna do it shall we indeed all right 11 minutes watch I, out yeah i like that sometimes i i, I reach for a yeah. transition and sometimes I just wait for you to stop talking, and then I say, let's get into it, shall we? The latter is much more insulting to me, <laughs> especially the way you phrased it. Yeah, you're right. Wait did, for Tyler did, to stop talking. Didn't, stop. didn't mean for it to come out that stop way. Stop yapping. Uh, but we hinted at, this, hinted at this last week Yeah. Um, when we said, uh, we were talking about Man Who Wasn't There Yeah. Uh, as, a, as a postmodern movie. Well, that's what we're going to dedicate this whole two and a half hour episode to. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, postmodern movies, and I guess mm-hmm. we should we we should take a second to try and define that. I mean, it's a tricky yeah. thing to define, and we're not going to go, or at least I'm not going to go like 
super deep with yeah. it. Uh, I mean, I in doing research, I found an article online where someone was making an argument for City Slickers as a postmodern film. And they actually made a really good argument, but I'm not. That's not what I'm gonna like do. a postmodern western or something like that. Just the idea that it's not a movie about cowboys; it's a movie about the cowboy iconography, and it st- stars or its characters are regular people who are aware of the cowboy iconography, and mm. so they're trying to live up to that, and not trying to actually be cowboys. They're trying to be this idea of of cowboys that already exists in right. public consciousness. And of course, you cast Jack Palance, uh-huh. who was kind of a staple right. of, of the genre. Um, yeah, that's an interesting argument yeah. um, because I feel like uh, uh, we'll we'll get further into it in a moment. But um, no, this is about as deep as we're going to go. Um, <clears throat> that but, in casting, mm-hmm. like through casting, that in itself can really change the the nature of the film that you're that you're making but we'll yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. But we what we want to talk about is sort of movies that uh have come out at a time that their audience is already very sophisticated in the language of movies mm-hmm. and using that to effect. Yeah. You know, sort sort of n- not really trying to pretend that uh, you're looking in on some version of reality when you're watching the story. Yeah, knowing that you know it's a movie. You know, I'll, I'll right. start with a. Uh, I'll kick it off with a very simple example, um, which and it's been done in plenty of movies, but I'll, I'll, I'll use this one as one as 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 an example, and that's uh, Ferris Bueller addressing the camera in Ferris yeah. Bueller's Day Off. Uh, that's the type of postmodern move I'm talking about because. Okay. Yeah, and and that's just sort of scratching the surface of it, yeah. but it, it is sort of just dipping your toes into this idea that uh, your audience knows that you're watching a movie, mm-hmm. and that's oh, it's always been it's a little more difficult to do that in a movie than a play for ways that are sort of counterintuitive, mm-hmm. uh, because because when you're watching a play, you're actually seeing real people they're doing these things. You'd think plays would be more realistic for movies mm-hmm. more realistic than movies but it's it's actually it's actually different uh it's it's the opposite i think people expect plays uh expect that plays are allowed to be larger than life uh, but they uh often will require more fidelity to reality from mm-hmm. from movies uh, yeah i i think because it's um because movies are immersive yeah, you, you know, uh, there's a there's a distance, there's a fourth wall I- right. in a play. Uh, with a movie, you're you're in the world, so yeah, uh, you ex- you sort of just subconsciously expect it to uh, behave like the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, sometimes when a movie doesn't behave like the real world, it's because it's a horror movie, or it's because it's trying to do so, or, you, you know, d- 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 trying to unsettle you as it were you yeah. know uh, but other times it's just taking that next evolutionary step and saying that you know it's a movie right we all know it's a movie let's not pretend it's not yeah and now we can have the character do things like talk to the camera yeah and i'll i'll, I'll address uh, a couple of the things that you've that you've mentioned first off um in using uh the word sophisticated and talking uh-huh. about newer audience uh, you know uh newer audiences i guess um and how their level of sophistication is, you know, it's 
greater than that of audiences from say 50 or 60 years ago uh that's that doesn't necessarily that's not an insult what it literally means is that we have more to draw from than audiences did then and so it's not saying that oh well they were just a bunch of slack-jawed yokels it's literally that there was nothing to there were no there really weren't a lot of you know cliche not cliches staples there weren't a lot of like well-worn well-known film staples that you could play with uh, at the time, yeah, and so and also we are an audience that has grown up being able to watch movies on on televisions and, yeah. and like be surrounded by them more often, and we subconsciously learn the language of film, yeah, as we grow up, and like this, you know, the next generation is going to be even more, yeah, uh, sophisticated, uh, you know, because they can watch movies anytime, anywhere, yeah, and someday it's going to be like a chip in your brain, right? Absolutely. Uh, oh my gosh, Big Brother, am I right? That's what I um, but the. Uh, and so it's it's interesting because uh, I, I'm I'm fascinated to see where your list is going because I think my list is headed in a different direction that is still the same comes from the same place because um, like with Ferris Bueller <clears throat> you mentioned that it just calls attention to the fact that look you're watching a movie you know you're watching a movie you're not actually in this person's life uh-huh. so let's just address that the the films that I actually made a list of were films in which, yes, you know you're watching a movie now, but it also acknowledges that you've watched other movies. That's actually, so, like I said, Ferris okay. Bueller's just sort of dipping the, okay. the toe, and that's more where I'm going as okay. well. Um, and let's, so let's move into the Coen brothers. Okay, all right. Talking about, because we, you know, we're talking about Man Who Wasn't There. Okay. And, I mean, they're really uh, one of the chief examples of this, mm. you know, uh, with Man Who Wasn't There being <clears throat> their postmodern noir film. Yeah. And... Well, I, I guess Big Lebowski is also their postmodern detective noir yeah. film, and everything. Uh, th- there's a, there's a postmodernism to to Blood Simple, which is mm-hmm. also noir, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, just really every one of their movies. Uh, Hudson like Proxy is a great example of the yeah. postmodern screwball comedy. Yeah, Willis Crossing is the postmodern uh, American gangster movie. Yeah, because uh, they all, to varying degrees, you know, Hudson like Proxy. And man who wasn't there clearly more so than Miller's Crossing. Yeah, uh, they they use the the trappings and the um, just the the language of the genre. Yeah, uh, in a way that it's different from the way that older films use the language, but yeah. it depends on the way that older <laughs> films use the language. Exactly, it's the the two are are connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and there and you actually brought up uh, Big Lebowski. That's that's on my list right here. Uh, there's, there's a, first off, as, as we mentioned, I think last week, um, there's a lot of references to, to old time, like, uh, Philip, no- uh, Philip Marlowe, uh, Raymond Chandler noir in, uh, in Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's one scene in there that, <clears throat> you know, a, a lot of, a lot of the, uh, films on my list there, you know, there will be like a vi- like a casting choice or a visual uh, reference to something that we've seen before, and maybe not even know that we've seen it. It took me a while to to realize this. Uh-huh. There's a um, <laughs> there's a uh, a scene where uh, in Double Indemnity, all right, where Barbara Stanwyck has to hide behind a door. Uh-huh. All right. But the whole basis of her hiding requires that the door open in a way that doors don't open. It opens out into the hallway, into the hallway of an apartment building. And doors always open inwards. Uh They don't open outwards. 
but she's right. in the hallway, and the guy who could catch her is leaving the apartment, so she has to be behind the door. The only way this works is if the door goes the wrong way. And it's something that I, I never really thought of, but because you never really think about which way a door opens, it just opens, and then you can walk through it. That's the end. <laughs> but uh, but so there so that happens, um, and it's a, it's a flaw. But like at the same time, yeah, who cares? Yeah, Big Lebowski, the dude is tired of people breaking into his house, <laughs> and so he nails. Quite sloppily, by the way. Uh, one of my favorite, something, again, something that you only come to realize after seeing it several times. Like, how many nails did he need? <laughs> All right, he nails a two by four in front of his door uh, onto, onto the floor and so that he can prop a chair up against the door and people can't come in. <clears throat> so just when he's done doing that uh, and he props the chair up and he, you know, and he decides he's going to calm down, take it easy now, uh, the door opens out. Uh-huh. And the ch- and the chair falls. Yeah, and you think like, haha, that's funny. You didn't even realize what the you know the way his door uh, opens. And then you think like, well, wait a second. He had every right to think that the door <laughs> would open the way every other door opens, except for the fact that he lives there. Except, well, he lives yes, but at the same time, it's it's obviously something that he'd not thought about. Uh, and that reference of the door opening the wrong way, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's it's. To me, because, the, you know, I, I don't think the, the Coens ever do anything by accident or, oh, what a coincidence that they're making this, uh, this you know, postmodern noir and, uh, they, may, and it, they have a joke that makes reference to, a, to an earlier noir. What a happy accident. I doubt that. Uh-huh. You know, I think it's probably a direct reference. And it's something that, uh, that I, <coughs> excuse me, that I, like, got a, a nice chuckle over. But at the same time, you know, as is the case with a lot of the films probably on my list... Uh, I I laugh at it just like everybody else, but I laugh out out on a different level that makes me so much nerdier and so much you know I, I feel like Professor Frank with the uh, the the corn popper thing that uh, Ralph wants uh-huh. to use and he's like no you will not laugh you you will not enjoy it until you can enjoy it on the on all the same levels as I do <laughs> and uh, and so that's that to me is a like a good example of of what the Coen brothers do right. it'll be that specific but it's different I mean. It, but the postmodernism we're talking about is, is larger than just making references. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. It's also uh, to stick with the Coens and talk, let's talk about Jennifer Jason Lee in Hudsucker Proxy*. Oh, yeah, and the fact that uh, you don't have to do a lot of character development for her because you recognize the type. Yeah, immediately from having seen other movies. Yeah, you know, the they, they just they have her talk a certain way and dress a certain way, and that you got it. You know who she is. Mm. Uh, and and I think that happens a lot with with characters in their movies, and then they'll often find ways to turn it on its ear, mm-hmm. as, as it were. Um, I'm trying to think of a direct example here, but I'm having trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, nope, can't do it. Dead air. All right. <laughs> Thanks, David. Um, but and that's something the Coens do a lot, though. Is is turn? Well, you know what? Um, uh, the man who wasn't there is a perfect example of. Um, yeah, he's the chain-smoking, uh, you know, sort of deadpan narration yeah. noir hero. Yeah. Uh, but he's he's different <laughs> from pretty much any other every other noir hero in that he does almost nothing yeah. in the entire movie. He yeah. does, you know, there's like the one sort of big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, but so much of the plot depends on him 
like not reacting. Oh yeah, to to stuff, uh, and that's that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Establishing this character in a way that we think we recognize him, and we think we know him, and then doing something different with it. Right, absolutely. Um, and so I, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And like, because often, um, okay, I'll bring up an example that that bothers me um, in the new Planet of the Apes. Uh huh. All right. Uh, there is a scene where, um, where the uh, humans talk and it is the first clue that it's going to be a terrible movie. Yeah, that's a problem. Uh, but at some point, uh, I think Mark Wahlberg winds up with his hands on Michael Clark Duncan's, uh, ape character. And, uh, Michael Clark Duncan says, uh, get your, uh, get your stinking hands off me, you damn dirty human. And it's like, oh, cause it's like the other thing. Yeah. And then Heston shows up as uh as Tim Roth's father, he's an ape, and he talks about humans and he says god damn them. Now, through Heston's acting, he sells the line and it seems organic. However, it's still it's still like a reference and it's just merely referencing something is not enough uh <clears throat> all it shows is that you're aware of something. Yeah. Um but well, there's literally nothing about that movie that I don't that I like. Hmm. I like Paul Giamatti in it. No, <laughs> even even if he's given the best performance of his life, he's so just buried in Tim Burton's stupid shit. I'll be, I'll be bringing up through. Tim Burton a couple of times. In yeah. fact, uh, once you know some in which uh, uh, positive, uh, in which I'll be talking about the Batman movies. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah he, you know, hey, young people, before Tim Burton consistently churned out crap. <laughs> Uh, he was actually a really good and respected director. I actually enjoy Sweeney Todd. Um, I didn't see it, but the uh, and I liked Big Fish, and I I I didn't but didn't didn't care for the Chocolate Factory. No, and not interested in Alice in Wonderland. Didn't see. Yeah, don't care. But um, but there there are some actor. There's I'm sorry. There are some directors who uh, li- much like the Coens, they understand. They're well versed in the language of film, and they understand that there are some images that are are they are iconic, and they will u- they will make reference to those images, but also they will they will, you know, one could say rip off, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but they will borrow the power of that image, and they're often reappropriating it as well. Yeah, and to me, like one of the best examples of this is in uh, I bring this movie up all the time. I guess I love it. Um, and I, I do love it, but I guess I love it more than I thought, which is The Descent. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a lot of visual cues uh, in that film um, that are, you know, lifted directly from other films. Aliens. Aliens, uh, Apocalypse Now, Carrie, like other oh. very suspenseful... Wait, what's the Apocalypse Now? Apocalypse Now, the lead character dips into a pool full oh, of blood. Oh, that's right. Okay, to escape... Uh, the monsters, and then when she comes out, it's it's just like uh, Willard, Martin Sheen, right? Yeah. Mil- uh, Martin Sheen uh, coming out of the swamp right. with the most like dead set eyes. Like it literally is is for her a trans a transformation. Like right. she was scared and afraid when she went in there, and now she's coming out completely different. Um, yeah, but it's is- also with the. <clears throat> There's other metaphors at work there with the well, blood and the rebirth and the feminism. And right. Well, and, and then, of course, when she gets out, she's covered in blood like Carrie right before Carrie kills everyone. Spoilers. <laughs> um, and so 
So yeah, it's, every so time he, you know the Onion AV Club did an interview with uh, PJ Souls recently. Oh yeah, and every time I totally. hear the story, that's something she does. Yeah, every time I hear the story about her getting hit with that fire hose, do you know mm-hmm. about it? Uh, no, I don't actually. Oh well, they turned the fire hose on her. It hit her in the side of the head, oh. and broke her her eardrum, and she like lost equilibrium. And so you actually, when she like flops over and falls down in Carrie yeah. when she gets hit with the with the water. That's really like she like had lost control of her body because it broke her eardrum, and every time I hear that story, it just uh, it it just upsets me so much. I feel bad for her. Yeah, does she get some kind of financial compensation for that? Who knows? And also, do the filmmakers know that fire hoses are powerful? I think filmmakers might know that now. I don't know if people knew that in well, they weren't as the sophisticated. Did they? Yeah, um, it was a, it was a much simpler time. But um, okay, but so like that's that that image like from Apocalypse Now and then Carrie, um, it really again it, it it it's like a nice little nod to people who will get it, but it also understands like yeah, there's a reason that those shots are so iconic in those mm-hmm. films because. There, there's an intense visual and emotional power in them, and I'm going to use them. Yeah, and uh, and so I think like Neil Marshall is somebody who's who's just really great at that. Well, I want to talk. I want to change gears a little bit. You <clears throat> mentioned casting earlier. Oh yeah, and uh, pretty much the the king of using casting in a postmodern way to me is Quentin Tarantino. Okay, I'm, I've got Tarantino on here. Um, because when he casts. A John Travolta, or even a Robert Forster, or a Lawrence Tierney. Certainly a Pam Greer. A uh, Pam Greer, yeah, exactly. Um, he is dependent on his audience bringing opinions and emotions about that person mm-hmm. to the movie. It's, yeah. uh, I mean, I don't know if it's dependent because, I mean, I'm young enough that I didn't know much about Lawrence Tierney or right. Pam Greer before I saw right. the movies they're in. So, I, and I was still able to very much enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it does help, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, and John, the John Travolta one's a good one, especially since we have to remember again, you and I are young and we don't really, I mean, we were what, 12, I was 12, I was 11 when Pulp Fiction came out. I turned 12 that year. Oh, yeah, okay, it came yeah. out earlier. Um, uh, it's uh, we have, we have to remember what John Travolta was before the mid nineties. Oh yeah, well uh, I mean, which he was, yeah, he had fallen out of whatever, but he yeah. was also on well, the sitcom Welcome Back, Cotter. Yeah, and then of course he was Tony Manero. Yeah, I uh, mean he was in Greece. He was in Saturday yeah. Night Fever. Yeah, yeah, and I've. Man, I swear, I, I've talked. I, I, there's something that I say about certain movies every once in a while, like Rocky mm-hmm. and Saturday Night Fever. And I know I've said it on the show before, but I have to re- reiterate: uh, you grow up with those movies being almost like cultural punchlines. Yeah. Uh, and I guess with Saturday, Saturday Night Fever, it's because of the the disco is such a ties it to a certain era, and because yeah. of Rocky, there's so many dumb sequels. Yeah. That you. I think for years I just took for granted that they were Planet of the Apes. Actually, another great example. Oh yeah, movies that for years I took for granted were dumb, kitschy movies that represented you know whatever the time they came out. But all three of those: Rocky, Saturday Night Fever, Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm so glad that I finally sat down and watched them when I was yeah. in college because they they're all all three great movies. You know, I'm, I've still never seen uh, Saturday Night Fever. Oh, I, I have the DVD. Gene Siskel's favorite film. Yeah, yeah. I have the. Uh, 25th anniversary DVD, I think. It's, You'll have to lend it to me. I'd like yeah. to watch it. The disc is a mirror ball, of course. Oh, of course it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah. Welcome back, Carter. Grease, mm-hmm. uh, Saturday Night Fever. He's the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. Uh, so now, who can dance? That that comes into yeah, play. Yeah, that's a big part of it. But now you take the coolest guy in the world and you make him a low rent hitman, a murderer. Yeah. Uh, but still a really cool guy. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, he is. He is. He is saying so much about how you're supposed to view yeah. these hitmen when you first see them simply yeah. by casting uh, Tony Manero. Yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, and then, yeah, the dancing thing. Well, <laughs> the, da- well the dancing thing is a big deal. I yeah. mean, I remember, you know, again, you and I were, were young. We didn't, uh, we didn't have the, the reference point. But, you know, I remember talking to people who, you know, were in their, you know, teens or 20s uh, during Welcome Back, Cotter, during Saturday Night Fever. Um, and they said when they watched Pulp Fiction and they saw him start to dance, they were just like, oh, my gosh. Like, all of a sudden, the Look Who's Talking films melted away, and they yeah. remembered who this guy was, uh-huh. you know. And so so I feel like that's that's something where <clears throat> that that an entire generation, something that they have that you and I don't, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like a, a memory that they all have and something that they could appreciate on a level that, that will only ever be, even if we watch all this, you know, all the episodes of Welcome Back, Cotter, it'll all it'll still only be academic for us. Like to mm-hmm. see an actor come back. I mean, Travolta's got like one of the best comebacks in history, I think. But to see the way in yeah, which he came but, back, yeah, and that's there's different ways to def- to define that best. Yeah. I mean, he came back and he did Pulp Fiction and Get Shorty, and yeah. then he was famous again. But then he kind of made a bunch of bad movies. But they're just really he was successful. in Primary Colors. He like he just yeah no there are, there yeah there are exceptions to the rule, but he yeah. did kind of. He didn't. I'll tell you what. He did a better job than Burt Reynolds. Yeah, who was supposed to have a big comeback with Boogie Nights. Yeah, and and didn't. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, and it's and you mentioned Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights. I mean, and and in the the idea of casting and people's previous knowledge of of you know a person's career or whatever and what they bring to it, the history they bring to it, and you know having Burt Reynolds play uh, Jack Horner, I believe the name of the character is right in Boogie Nights. I think so. I've only seen it once. And I didn't like it. Oh man, it's good stuff. Uh, and he's great. And in it's it. got a lot of great scenes in it. Yeah, that's and, how I feel about it. And a lot of them are his. Uh, he's just he brings just such like a natural charisma to it that you remember like, oh yeah, this isn't the guy from Cop and a Half. I'm glad I've got all these references. <laughs> I've got all these things worked out. This isn't the guy from Cop and a Half. This is the guy who was, you know, much like John Travolta. He was the epitome of cool. He was like the biggest star in the country, yeah. you know, several years in a row uh, yeah. in, in the in the 70s. And so, reca- you know, casting him in that because it takes place, you know, in the se- you know late 70s, early 80s. And so, of course, you cast him because he's an icon uh, of that time. And it just wouldn't feel right to have a film without him. Um, I'll actually bring up a, an example of, of casting. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'll bring up two, actually. One is uh, Revolutionary Road. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you know, for those that don't know, it stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, and they were the the doomed romantic couple in uh, Titanic. Yeah, doomed our, our generation's Romeo and, and Juliet. Yeah, well, he was also Romeo and something else. Yeah, in in Romeo plus Juliet. That's the one. Yeah, Shakespeare's yeah. Romeo plus Juliet. Romeo must die. Um, <laughs> the. Uh, 
And so, you know, it's it was just, I mean, it was the, everyone saw the film. It was this heartbreaking thing that, oh my gosh, they love each other so much, uh, but now they can't be together because of this tragedy. Um, but by casting these two people who are so iconic and the, the essence of, you know, the ideal of love uh, in modern film, uh, and then casting them as this as this married couple that hate each other and are just just so dissatisfied with what where their romantic life went. Um, I mean, it's it's a very cynical choice to cast those two people and just kind of undercut an entire generation yeah. of people who viewed them as the their relationship in that in Titanic as the ideal. Yeah. But again, it. That casting said, them was a was an interesting choice. That said, Jack and Rose, it wouldn't have worked out. You don't think so? No, not at all. She would have outgrown him. But he would have... Why do you say that? Oh, because I get it. Because he's poor? Is that it? Is that what you're saying? Uh, She's too sophisticated? There's that word again, David. I don't think he's uh, very ambitious. Oh, okay. But no, he's going to America. <laughs> Wanting tickets in a poker game. He's, he's from America. Yeah, but he's going back. I don't know why you did. No, I, I, I think she's smarter than he is. She's more ambitious. Mm-hmm. She's probably gonna wanna, I don't know, be educated and travel. And he wants to drink and play cards. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's a delightful sitcom. Yeah. I'll tell you that. It's a beautiful dream. <laughs> um, the other one that I'll bring that was up. a Seinfeld reference. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful dream. I love it to be this man. <laughs> Sorry, we gotta we can cut that out. That's so stupid. We're not cutting that. Out. I watched. That's. I think that's. My, my favorite episode. It's now, one so, of them. Just to make sure, that's the one with shoehorn hands, right? Yeah, the one <laughs> Jerry's barber is the old guy, Enzo, yeah. I think. Enzo, yeah. And then his uh, nephew is the younger guy, Gino, I think. Mm-hmm. And Gino loves Edward Scissorhands, and Enzo doesn't understand it. You know, yeah. It's a beautiful dream. I love it to be this man. He's like, what kind of a person has scissors for hands? You ever thought about what you're going to do on the toilet? What are you going to do on the toilet? <laughs> Uh, David actually made my cat look up on that one. Um, but, uh, yeah, there we go. I'm sorry. I watched it like two nights ago and I can't get it out of my head. It's a good episode. Um, anyway. so another, uh, another, uh, example of the, the importance of, of casting, I would mm-hmm. say is the limey. Um, because it's, it's very, the limey, by the way, just in general is a very fascinating film, uh, from a lot of different, in a lot of different ways. And, uh, it's Steven Soderbergh, who is a, a director who, much like the Coens, is very well versed in the language of film and will mm-hmm. often use that. Um, but yeah. in this case, uh, <coughs> uh, there's a lot going on. It's it, it's a, a not certainly not an action movie, but it's a, it's a suspense thriller in which most of the characters are over the age of fifty, um, and and they have a strong sense of history, and and specifically the sixties. And what it was to live in during that time and, and mm-hmm. trying to find where you, you know, what your place is in the world now that the 60s are over. And so um, the villain named Terry Valentine is his character. He's a music producer. He is he is, you know, uh, his character has packaged the 60s so that he can make a great deal of money off of it. Mm-hmm. And in that role, they cast Peter Fonda. And of course, Peter Fonda is, you know, he's, I'd say he's one of the most iconic images of the 60s. Easy yeah, Rider because specifically. Because of Easy Rider mostly, yeah. And, um, but more specific, you know, he was, he was the guy who... Did you ever see The Hired Hand? No, I didn't, it's which you own, yes. Great movie, yeah. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, during, in the commentary of The Hired Hand, 
Peter Fonda, there's a scene where he his character is, I believe, naked, and Peter Fonda goes, there I am, bare-assed, but not embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, uh, if you can ever listen to Peter Fonda say anything that comes from his own mind, by all means, listen to that, because he says some fun stuff on the Limey commentary as yeah. well. But by casting... By casting him, uh, a character, an actor who embodies the spirit of the '60s and the freedom, and the you know being like a nonconformist, uh, as a character who went on to later profit a lot from in, a, in the most corporate way possible from that. Like it, first off, there's an, the character himself then becomes iconic, but also becomes a commentary on. Um, what will eventually happen to idealism. It's very cynical. And one could say that uh, in The Informant, again, Soderbergh, uh, he casts the Smothers Brothers. He casts a lot of comedians, but he casts the Smothers Brothers in two different roles. One of them is the head of a company, and one of them is a judge. And so these guys, you know, in their in their day were actually very uh, controversial and very, mm-hmm. you know, they did things their own way. And so in casting them as... The establishment. The, the establishment. Yeah. You know, there's a commentary there as well. And so so Soderbergh really understands the importance of, not even necessarily the importance of casting, but he understands that through casting you can make a commentary, you know, you can comment on something without even actually saying anything. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. I'm sorry, I've been talking for a while. David, what do you got? You got more Seinfeld I, for me? <laughs> I wish. Um, I don't really have anything more about about casting mm-hmm. um but i'm not really sure i guess this goes back to the jennifer jason lee thing but mm-hmm. another movie that i saw recently uh rewatched recently was mulholland drive okay and it got me thinking about both mulholland drive and blue velvet um the main characters behave in a way that's not even i mean eventually as the, as the story goes on they get deeper they get to stretch their acting muscles but the mm-hmm. way they're introduced is the way they were they're not really characters yeah. they're they're archetypes mm-hmm. and that's a part of the like i mean david david lynch is a midwesterner like i am yeah uh and that's that influences a lot of his stuff you know blue velvet and Mulholland drive and and twin peaks um straight story and straight story too, yeah. Which I should rewatch actually now that I'm more now that I'm more sophisticated. There you go. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm just thinking about the way Kyle MacLachlan is just so innocent, mm-hmm. you know, and the way Naomi Watts is also not only so innocent and naive, but yeah. also just believes these things about Hollywood mm-hmm. and believes them so much that they kind of almost come true for her. <laughs> but in really weird ways. Yeah. You know, I don't now, know. I haven't seen it since you and I saw it in the theater. Yeah. So I mean, she, uh, refresh my memory. She moves, she, she goes there and she's staying with her aunt. So she's immediately living in this like bungalow, like very sort of Hollywood. Like, so you can tell it's off of sunset Boulevard somewhere. Yeah. Uh, this bungalow, huge, beautiful, you know, there's uh, a bunch of old, like, uh, just sort of Hollywood character types living in the building. Yeah. I guess not bunch. There's just the the building manager, you know, who's very much like the uh, failed Liza Minnelli wannabe or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, but still has all her pluck and charm, yeah. you know. Um, uh, and, and then, of course, she gets she like within like she moves in like the next day. She's like, I've got a big audition tomorrow, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then that's it, it, it's it's such a great it, it, postmodernism and irony in filmmaking are sort of 
they go hand in hand because yeah. they're playing with your expectations. Yeah. Uh, you know, so he David Lynch is, he uses this his postmodern approach to set up uh, the premise and who the character is and what her situation is, what she believes and what we think is supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. And then the audition happens and she, you get to see that Naomi Watts is an amazing actress because she knocks this thing out of the park and it's yeah. not like clean and sterile and like fifties Hollywood. Like it's this, it's a really like uh, dark and creepy and very sexualized scene that she's playing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember this? That that the audition at I, all? I don't actually. Yeah, because she walks in and the guy, <clears throat> the 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 sto- the character she's auditioning for is uh, uh, a, a I guess a teenager, maybe a young adult, mm-hmm. uh, having an affair with one of her father's friends. Okay, and she walks in and the guy who's playing the father's friend uh, just. Uh, pretty much like it looks like George Hamilton, like just like okay. bronze fake tan hair looks like you couldn't move it with a sledgehammer, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and then they start playing the scene, and it's completely different than the way she had rehearsed it at, at home when she had hmm. been all melodramatic. They play it real, and it's the first time in the movie that it it, it goes from being uh, and uh, just a, a, a like again almost like a 1950s in his, like star is born like the mm-hmm. the beginning of a star is born but, yeah. but you know before things go whatever uh or or like singing in the rain which is yeah. also actually kind of a postmodern movie mm-hmm. um it goes from being that to suddenly being a real movie even mm-hmm. the, but uh, again there's another layer of distance because it's not a real movie it's an audition yeah. that's happening within the movie yeah uh yeah David Lynch does that a lot, and that was, that's uh, one of the best examples and the freshest in my memory. So that's why I brought it up. Um, I think perhaps. Uh, well, okay, I'll, I'll actually go back to what made me um, suggest this uh, topic in the first place. Though you're the one that actually gave it the name. Um, I came <clears> up with the name postmodernism. Yes, I I came up with the word. You're welcome, society. <laughs> um, but. Uh, so Jen and I were watching uh, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow uh-huh. the other day, and uh, I love that film. Uh, I saw it in the theater and loved it at the time. And I remember I, seeing lo- I liked it a lot when I saw it in the theater. Mm-hmm. I bought the DVD and I've rewatched it, and it didn't hold up for me. Okay, I think it's a movie that needs to be, or for me, needed to be seen in a theater and needed to be seen once. Uh, I've seen it several times. I still like it, <laughs> um, but I will agree with you that it is at its best when in a theater. Um, but uh, I remember when I first saw a trailer for the film, you know, they, they really only showed you flashes. They didn't tell you much about the story. Yeah. Now, there's a lot to tell. But uh, it was really just, just these really fascinating images that are completely, you know, very art deco, very, you know, noirish at times, a lot of German expressionism. Um, and I remember when, when I saw the trailer, I was like, did somebody remake Metropolis? <laughs> I feel like. Nobody would do that, but it would appear someone has, uh, and then you find out that it's not. It's this other thing that is a reference, you know, a reference to Metropolis, certainly. But you know, these serial, you know, films, uh, much like Indiana Jones, you know, these serial films from like the '30s, and and it's just such a fascinating film. And uh, so I looked it up, and not surprisingly, it didn't do very well at the box office, uh, in spite of the, you know, they the studio put a lot of money into it. Uh, it's been the only Burger King tie-ins, I think. Is that true? Probably. Okay. I think it is. I don't recall. 
But um, the you know, and I looked up the director, and it's the only feature length film he's made. And so I think, I think the the studio is putting a lot into this film. Uh, and I feel like the filmmaker might have like was somehow punished for the film not doing well. But what fascinates me is in watching, I remember thinking like, who is this movie for? <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I love it. You know, and, and I, the reason that I agreed so emphatically with you about the idea of it need, needing to be seen in the theater mm-hmm. or ideally being seen in the theater is because it harkens back to a time when theater was really all there was. And, and it was a big spectacle film and, and I remember just thinking, like, this, I mean, I enjoy it. That doesn't necessarily, you know, that doesn't make me better or worse than anybody else. But it's a film for film fans. You know, only people who are familiar, familiar with these images and these mm-hmm. types of stories would ever, could ever enjoy this film in the truest sense. And I remember just being, um, <clears throat> you okay there? I'm trying to get that fly. Okay. But, uh, and so that actually kind of got me thinking about films uh, and that led me to talking, thinking about the Untouchables uh, and you know the yeah. stairway sequence. That's a reference to Battleship Potemkin. Um, and I remember just thinking, like, is you know w- these are seemingly these are mainstream films. Uh, you know, it would appear they certainly the studio is trying to make them mainstream. And uh, but it just makes me wonder, like, w- what did they ever think was going to happen with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, so I I took it to you because there is an entire not necessarily a genre but there are films that will make you know make reference to an earlier time in film that you know as i mentioned like some people shawshank redemption is like the oldest film they've seen maybe the godfather scarface but um and so why on earth would would you ever try and mass market sky captain the world of tomorrow Mm -hmm. and for that matter batman and batman returns which did do well but of course it had batman yeah. So there's that, but um, you know these are these are films that visually harken back to something that most people aren't aware of. And I remember, you know, when I was a kid and I saw Batman Returns, I was it's it's it was very depressing to me. <laughs> it's uh, a sad movie, yeah. I mean, it's it's sad, but also just the just the look of it. It's so dreary because, of course, and it might as well be black and white. I mean, mm-hmm. even the character, even though it's in colors, even though it's in color, the characters' faces are still white somehow. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so I remember as a kid, you know, Batman Returns came out when I was ten, and I enjoyed it. But I remember being like, "This is weird. This isn't." Like it's even it's even more expressionistic than the first Batman, mm-hmm. um, and so I feel like there's, I don't know, it's I, I'm not really sure if I feel like there's there's a question in here somewhere. Like, do you think, I don't know, do you think that studios are foolhardy for like bankrolling films like Sky Captain? And another example, even though I don't care for it, like Death Proof, which of course also did poorly. And probably not just because it was three hours long. Yeah. Well, Death Proof probably didn't cost a lot. That's true. To make. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think uh, there's just a... With um, with Sky Captain, they probably saw Jude Law, Angelina Jolie, and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, um, and action. And I think yeah. they just sort of punched the numbers in and figured okay. people <laughs> will go see that. Yeah. Because they don't... They, I, I really don't think they take. They don't. They, it, this is off topic, but I feel like studios do not take the whole picture into account. They literally okay. do just look at the elements, and think, 
you know. Yeah. It's uh, I I've this is another thing I've said in the podcast before, but it's from an interview with Brad Bird, and he said that if you had a year where there were a bunch of successful, really successful movies, and in each one of those movies the main character wore a red shirt, mm-hmm. they'd be like, "We got to have more movies with people in red shirts." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's the studio mentality. Um, they'd really think you're that dumb. You audience. Not me and David so Just much. bringing back that cynicism from last week. There you they go. They really do think we're all that dumb. I'd say that's about right. Uh, but I, I know we got to wrap up soon. Uh, so I wanted to, to... Right? Yeah, yeah. No, okay. absolutely. Uh, there's a couple that I really wanted to talk about. Uh, one that's probably the most uh, screamingly postmodern movie uh, of all time, and that is Scream. What? Uh, You're, of course, talking about uh, Do the Right Thing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, Wes Craven's Scream. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I, do you? Wes Craven directed it, but I think of it as Kevin Williamson's Scream. I know we, usually when we put that possessive apostrophe s before a movie, we're talking about the director, but I, I really feel like it's Kevin Williamson. Uh, I think the postmodern element is Kevin Williamson. Uh-huh. I think the the like a different director, and that could have been straight up comedy. Yeah. But I'm not Wes a big Craven, Wes Craven fan to begin with, I guess, is part of it. I recently watched, for the first time, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh-huh. Uh, and, of course, I followed it up with the new one, because I'm on a podcast called A Welcome Invasion of Privacy, uh, and uh, talk, comparing the two films. And, uh, you know, you really come to... And the stories are actually very similar between the first and second, and you really come to realize just how talented a horror director Wes Craven was I mean maybe he maybe he still is I I find Scream to be very frightening yeah and I feel like if you were to go just from the script there's there's some scary elements in there but the wrong director like would not have known like how long to hold the tension for like on the phone a lesser director right. would have wanted to jump right into the violence right into the gore uh-huh. um and uh, and Wes you know Craven didn't right. do that all right you've you've won me over <laughs> I'm now a Wes Craven fan oh good um. <laughs> <laughs> um, he directed Last House on the Left, though, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's that. Um, We're none of us perfect, David. But yeah, Scream is even more so than. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, like the Mulholland Drive scene that I talked about, where mm-hmm. it's, it's an audition for a movie within a movie, that and, and the characters are all sort of aware of that. That's 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 the same kind of thing I'm talking about that happens in Scream, mm-hmm. where. It's not as if they're, they're the characters in the movie aren't in a movie, yeah. But they're everything they're doing, everything, every way they're reacting, mm-hmm. uh, is based on the fact that they've seen movies, you yeah. know. And it's done in a way that's, uh, that's that's funny and fun to watch because yeah. you hadn't we hadn't really seen thing anything quite this this bold or blatantly, you know, uh, referential mm-hmm. before. Um, but it also kind of says something about the way that, uh, the way that our, the pop culture, uh, influences us, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I'm also thinking about, this is a movie that I just thought about now that I didn't have my on my list, uh, The Beach. Oh, okay. Um, Richard, the, uh, character played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who's come up a lot in this episode. He's very um, postmodern, that guy. <laughs> uh... He behaves in very dire situations uh, in a way that's very much informed by the video games and movies that he's watched. Yeah. You know, you see you quite 
literally it turns into a video game. Mm-hmm. But then there's a part where he's there, there are parts that are very much influenced by the Deer Hunter. Mm-hmm. Uh and the thing is he's aware of the danger and aware of its sim- of the situation similarities to the Deer Hunter at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think that says something about about us, you yeah. know, like if you or I were standing in the bank and a bunch of guys came in and started robbing it, yeah. we'd be terrified, and we'd also be like, "This is like Point Break." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, it, it, we'd we'd have both thoughts simultaneously, and Scream and The Beach are both movies that kind of recognize that and use it. Yeah, um, and it's it's odd that you that you mentioned Scream as the most postmodern. Uh, film uh, of what was it? What, what was your phrasing? I, well, I think I called it the most screamingly postmodern. Film. Oh, is that what it was? The, okay, all right, never mind then. I just kind of um, did it for the, yeah, for the fun. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, I would say it's not the most, uh, not the most screamingly postmodern. I would, I, I wouldn't even say it's the most screamingly postmodern film that Wes Craven has made. Okay, he made a film called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Oh, which I've never seen. Which is, uh, I've only seen parts of it. Um, and admittedly, didn't get it. Want to know why? Because as I mentioned, hadn't seen any Nightmare on Elm Street uh, until uh, two weeks ago. And so, uh, <coughs> so for those that don't know, Wes Craven's new Nightmare, it came about in the mid, uh, early mid-90s. And basically, the people who make Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven's in it as himself, and you know, all the actors are like the characters they're playing and they also play themselves. Huh. And so David, man, stop messing with this fly. You are distracting me and I don't know I'm what distra- to do. This fly is distracting me. I know. Okay. Not the, I'm not the one who has a, who lives in a den of filth that has flies in it. Fair enough. <laughs> you will though. You're in North Hollywood now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, thanks for the write up movie maker magazine. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, so in Wes Craven's new nightmare, Basically, the people who make Nightmare on Elm Street films are themselves starting to have nightmares about Freddy Krueger, uh-huh. and they're dying. And so there's like this weird thing where the art is informing the death that they're making, and there's no way to understand this. You know, Johnny Johnny Depp show like previous cast members from like ten years before, uh-huh. uh, like show up as themselves, and uh, as if, the actors, Johnny Depp plays himself or plays the character? himself. That's great. I had no, I had no idea about all this. Oh yeah, it's it's a, it's insane. But that's the thing is, uh, it's it's a neat. It's one could say that though it is postmodern, it's the natural, it's the nat- uh, natural extension of the themes that the Nightmare on Elm Street series explores, which is the the horror inside your mind and inside mm-hmm. your dreams. And and to comment on the idea that uh, that art. Uh, informs uh how we think and how we feel and all that Uh um if you immerse yourself in these films after a while it will start to get to you even if you're the one making it you know and so uh so Wes Craven's new nightmare it's just such a it and it's also of course very funny but also very frightening and I think one of the reasons that I like Wes Craven is that he understands uh certainly with Scream although again this this comes from a a lot from Kevin Williamson he understands that laughing and screaming can often go very well together mm-hmm. and uh and so he understands that with scream a lot of the horror comes from the fact that they've seen the characters have seen movies we've seen movies and that's not going to save us the fact that we know uh-huh. these cliches is not going to help us we're gonna die either way and that's 
you know, that's him using postmodern uh, postmodernism, which I think is kind of one could say a way to detach yourself. I mean, you said irony goes well with it. Mm-hmm. And I would say a certain distance and, and detachment go with it as well. You can you can stand outside of something and comment on it, thus ke- keeping your distance from any kind of emotional impact it might have. But with Scream and with uh, New Nightmare, uh, he kind of turns postmodernism on its ear and says, like, no, even the people stand- who think they're standing outside of it, they're going to get it too. And so that's 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 why I like those two movies, and I think why they might be a nice capper for this episode. Okay. So <clears throat> there was one other movie I wanted. Go to right talk ahead, about. David. Uh, but just briefly, I wanted to talk. I uh, really wanted to get to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. <coughs> okay. Uh, which is a uh, detective crime story that yeah. takes place in Los Angeles. Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is an actor. What is he? Is He's he a, a former thief who uh, is kind of an actor now. Right, because okay. he stumbled into an audition while trying to uh, That's escape right. police. That's right. Um, and it, okay, yeah, he's a thief and an actor, and this is a movie that goes back and forth. It, that's part of the the fun of it is that the plot could be a real crime story yeah. or a movie crime story. What happens is going to be is going to be one of those things, and you never know which one. You yeah, know? yeah. Sometimes it's like goofy fun cop movie where things happen like that wouldn't really happen in real life yeah. and then things happen that would happen in real life and yeah. it's terrifying and sickening yeah. <laughs> you know uh the best example is uh the um it's the third funniest guy getting shot in the head scene of all time oh yeah uh which is the the sort of russian roulette interrogation thing where he's like yeah <laughs> he puts one bullet in and says you know tell me what you need to know and i'll or i'll i'll pull the trigger until you yeah. know and the happens to land on a bolt and the first one first time <laughs> yeah. it just shoots the guy right in the head yeah and it's horrifying it's and horrifying hilarious. and then hilarious yeah because it's the third third funniest what are the first two again the second funniest okay is in uh george romero's land of the dead okay uh, when dennis hopper shoots his valet in the back of the head okay yes that is very funny uh and the funniest of all time is in out of sight when white boy bob is running up the stairs and trips and falls and shoots himself through the head that's very very funny yeah and of course, these are very funny, primarily because of the reactions of the people that yeah. are left standing. Um, now, where would you would you say that uh, Pulp Fiction is number four? Uh, honestly, no, I never liked that. You never liked it, okay? No, it doesn't seem like I don't buy that he would be just waving his gun around while sitting in traffic. While he's not waving it around; he's just holding it in his hand, and then he leans. even he, holding it. Why is he holding his gun? That's true. He's yes. a professional. He's a guy. It's not like he just got his first gun. But he's also not the smartest guy. Yeah. But he seems like he's enough of a professional that he wouldn't be sitting in the passenger seat of a car with no threat anywhere yeah. and just holding a revolver. With his finger on the trigger, no less. Yeah, yeah. As much as I like Pulp Fiction, that's bothered me. It bothered me the first time I saw it, and I've yeah. only, in like repeat viewings, really been able to articulate why. Yeah, maybe the... Uh, I think the circumstances surrounding it are a little suspect. But again... Their reaction to it is very funny. Yeah, that's um, true. But, uh, uh, where, where, I'm sorry. Where, uh, kiss, kiss, uh, kiss, bang, kiss, bang. Kiss, bang, bang. That's right, yes. Uh, um, and, yeah, that, that, that's... that's uh, anyway, I said what I had to say, but you go on. Well, and... and oh, except for my favorite line okay, in the movie. Uh, even though it's a little bit, I guess, sort of misogynistic. Okay. Uh, 
Robert Downey Jr.'s character describes the women in Los Angeles <laughs> as if someone grabbed the country by the East Coast and shook it, and all the sane ones managed to hang on. That's such a great line. <laughs> That's a really solid line. Um, yeah, and it, and of course that that film was written and directed by Shane Black, mm-hmm. who uh, that film could not have been written by somebody, and it's like their first screenplay. It's written by somebody who's been in Hollywood a while, yeah, and has made action films and has dealt with. Uh, you know what people's expectations of Hollywood are, as opposed to what the reality is, um, and it's vi- and so a line like that ha- that's somebody who's lived in Los Angeles for a while <laughs> and has talked to a lot of these women. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's there's scenes in there where Robert Downey Jr. like he uh, a, a girl gets shot and uh, and it's very sad. Yeah, and then Robert Downey Jr. takes revenge immediately and starts to cry a little bit. Because he's never killed anyone before. This uh-huh. is a big deal for him. And you, and in that moment, you realize, like, right, yes, I am watching a movie, but this is real for the character. And then his, and then his, his finger gets eaten by a dog. But that's, <laughs> again, that's that's how this film is. Which is that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like him yeah. losing the tip of his finger is really painful. Oh yeah, and 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 upsetting to me. Yeah. And then the things that happen with it are very movie-ish. Oh, yeah. That movie is a lot of fun, and it's also kind of taunting you a little bit the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like, I I dare you to enjoy this. Yeah. And then it'll 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 rope you in by being very enjoyable, and yeah. then there's the thing like, yeah, the sad yeah. death of the girl. It's a film that really explores how much fun a film can have, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, and, it, and basically every... every uh, convention that a film can have it will turn it on turn it on its ear like starting certainly starting mm-hmm. with the narration um which is very one some have said a little smug and admittedly i could see that but just very self-aware just the whole film is incredible you you may not find a more self-aware film yeah. than kiss kiss bang bang and even the title of the movie comes from uh pauline kale's dismissive description of those kind of movies yeah yeah uh, it's so it yeah so right all the way down to the title yeah. it's, it's which it wears pretty much as a badge of honor <laughs> i would say yeah but um all right so let's uh okay so that was our discussion hopefully you guys enjoyed it we're at an hour six doing okay yeah let's get the announcements right out of the way real okay. quick okay first off june 5th meltdown comics at seventy five twenty two sunset boulevard here in los angeles california mm. uh it's battleship pretension live Woo. <laughs> Round two, um, uh, we got. It's gonna be me and you, yeah. obviously. It's gonna be uh, uh, Ed Salazar. Yeah. It's gonna be Mike Schmidt. Yeah. It's gonna be the King of TV, Paul Goebel. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be star of Inglorious Bastards and I Love You, Beth Cooper, Paul Rust. Mm-hmm. And it's gonna be the Sklar Brothers, the funniest uh, twins from St. Louis ever. <laughs> You're getting more specific with that. Um, <laughs> I just have to mention that they're from St. Louis every time. I know it's very off-putting. Um, <laughs> uh, that's going to be five bucks to get in. Um, it's it's going to be awesome. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. In addition to the five bucks for awesomeness, uh, it's going to be free beer. Now, someone on Twitter, and I don't. Okay, listen. I said five bucks, free beer, and the guy was like, "Well, if it's five bucks, you can't really say free." And I'm like, "No," which is a point that I actually made during our last live show, and you shunned me. You, no, you... the show is five bucks. Okay, the beer is free. Tip your bartender. Tip yeah, your bartender. Yeah. I, I don't know. Do you think it's not free entertainment to just go and see live comedy of this caliber? Mm-hmm. Did I run? Did I did I run down the the the, the guests yet? Did I do? I that? don't think so. It's Who are Ed they Salazar, yeah. Paul Goebel, Mike Schmidt. Paul Rust and the Sklar brothers. Yeah, and you and me. Yeah, and the two of us. Yeah, but those other people, you can't just get their comedy for free. Yeah, 
any day of the week. This is a Saturday night. You're paying five bucks, which is a bargain. Yeah, by the way. absolutely. This is at least a seventeen dollar comedy yeah. show. Who was and, it that said that that five dollar thing? That uh, it was just like, well, if it's five bucks, who said that? Oh, someone on Twitter. Oh, just someone. Okay. Yeah. I still hope he shows up though. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, just for the right. For, yeah. Okay. It's five bucks to get in. Yeah. The beer is free. Tip your bartender. Okay. Yeah. We got that out of the way. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, yeah, the donation drive is over, but we're not. It's not like we're taking down the donate button. Absolutely. Uh, if you missed the donation drive you, and you missed out on some of the prizes. Uh, you could always wait till we do it again next year, uh, which I would not suggest. But um, we it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt just yeah. to to throw us some money. It it's uh, it, it helps us a lot. This it isn't free for us to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and um, it is free for you to listen to it. So it would help us if you enjoy it. Anything at all that you can give helps. And if you do the donation subscription, uh, it's two dollars a month. Uh, comes right out for a year. You don't even feel it. You don't even feel it's it. It's $2 a month. Yeah. So that's out of the way. All right. You can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. Mm-hmm. In iTunes under Battleship Retention, write a review, subscribe. That would help. Uh, a nice comment, please. Thank um, you very much. I don't care. Uh, what you write, just write a review. Um, I you care so very much. You can find me uh, tweeting for the show, but really for myself, at Twitter.com slash ThePretension. Um, you can find my other podcast previously on at pre, uh, under iTunes under previously on, um, or on Twitter at previously on show with no W. You can find Tyler on Twitter at more lessons, which is the official Twitter feed of his other podcast, more than one lesson, which you can find in iTunes or at more than one lesson.com. More than one lesson is, uh, movie, movie discussion, movie reviews for the discerning Christian. That's the one. Yes. 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 And previously on is of course, a look back at the last seven days in all the television worth watching for the discerning movie, uh, TV watcher. <laughs> That's your thing. Yeah. Mine's all the television worth watching. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Do you not want a discerning audience, though? Is that what you're saying? Uh, I, I'll, I'll take all comers. Okay. All right. Uh, so we got all the announcements out of the way in about three minutes. That was pretty good. That's pretty good. So let's wrap it up. Okay. Well, hang on real quick. Oh, I, I, said I, the wheeze, you... I said I'd do something for a, a friend of mine. Slam it on the brakes. This better be worth it. Okay. There is a video podcast. Uh, there's, on, there's not a lot of episodes available right now, and it's called Jump Cut Junkies. Uh-huh. And it's Nick and Gabe, and it's actually very, uh, it's it's very funny. Um, the episodes are are not very long, uh, and I'm, not, I'm I just say that because like with video, you have to concern, you know, it's a concern like how much space is going to take up on my iPod. But um, but they're very funny, and uh, and it's just a it's a good show. I enjoyed it a great deal. So jump cut junk jump cut junkies, you can find it uh, in iTunes. That's for you, Nick. Enjoy. Yeah, write them a review and tell them Battleship Pretension sent you. Indeed. All right. Uh, That's all I have for this week. Let's get out of here. All right, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.